If I'm the spiritual leader, we're screwed, I'll tell you. <laughs> I'm Bob Darrell, I'm an alcoholic. Hey, and only through the grace of a God that truly I was afraid to believe in because of my unworthiness and uh, good sponsorship, a set of actions outlined in a book entitled Alcoholics Anonymous and a purpose other than me of helping other drunks and consequently I haven't had a drink or any mind or emotion altering medication since October 31st, 1978. And I'm, that's, it's actually, it's actually my personal best, you know, uh, truly. If I drank again, I'd never live. To... Um, I want to thank I want to thank Rick for coming down to Sac uh, taking bringing me up here from Sacramento in his uh, in his 300 mile an hour Tesla. Uh, I got closer to God on the way up here. Um, and I want to thank Kim and, the, and the, all the people in the committee. Just to, I've been involved in a lot of events in AA. It's 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 joyous useful, fulfilling work to put something like this on. And it's, and, and I'd like to thank David, who's uh, I've known for a long time. He's the guy that's back there with the headphones on that you'd think he's probably listening to the recording, make it, making sure it's right. He's actually listening to talks of himself. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I want to know who's here, because uh, it'll it, it'll affect me. It, it ch it'll change what I share this weekend. Uh, who's here in their first thirty days of abstinence? Anybody? Garen, I'm an alcoholic. Garen, welcome. Thank you for being here. Thank you for admitting it, because I wouldn't have admitted it, because you. <laughs> You'll be gang 12-stepped in here, I'll tell you. Uh, <laughs> uh, anybody, in the, how about in the first year? Wow. How many people are sober under 10 years? Wow, okay. That seems to be the majority. How about uh, 10 to 20? Twenty to thirty? Nice. Thirty to forty? Wow. Uh, forty to forty five? Me? Over forty five? Over over forty five? Oh, hey. wow. Glad you're here. I'm always, I don't, I, the people that are sober, the new people and the people that are sober a long time and still active, um, oh, always make me feel good in a room. Uh, there's a lot of people, I'm very active in Alcoholics Anonymous. I have a home group. I have, I probably go to I probably eight meetings a week. I got two hospital institution commitments panels to this day. I've always had that. I, because my first sponsor had that. And that's why you learn what you learn when you're new, you know. And, um, and I sponsor guys and I do all that stuff. Not because, so I can come up here and tell you about it. It just seems to add something. It changes me in here. You know, uh, I've, lived, I've lived my life, a huge portion, a big portion of it, where I was my primary purpose. And that sucks. And I've lived the last 40-some years with a purpose other and greater than myself, and that's to help other people. I don't think there's anything more important to me uh, than having a purpose in my life, a reason to get out of bed in the morning, you know? You know what your life's about. And, and this, this was baffling to me. In the years I was in and out of Alcoholics Anonymous and institutions, I came to my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. I was probably 20 years old, and I was in an institution. I was made to go, didn't want to go. AA was, oh, was offensive to me. It was like horrible. 
this was it was worse than church, Amway, any of that. So, I mean, it was I didn't know what AA was, but it, to me it looked like a combination of Amway and the Salvation Army or something. It was like creepy to me, you know. I just and I I was very defended against you and very judgmental against you because I'm a defended kind of guy. So I didn't get much out of it. But in those years that I was in and out, I I, I learned in my innermost self what it is to be a, an alcoholic. And I, I tell you, I think what it says in step one in the book is it might very well be the most difficult thing an alcoholic ever does. Because if you look at it the way it says it in chapter three, it's not that it, we admitted we were powerless over alcohol, dash, that our lives had become unmanageable. It's we learned, which means, and that's that learning process almost killed me of, of seven years, almost seven years of relapsing, years of swearing to myself in, in county jail, waking up with ink on my fingers, of, of in a detox, you know, crying and swearing to myself I'll never drink again and drinking again. It says we, we learned we had to fully concede. Fully is like a lot. I think it's more than half. We had to fully concede to our innermost selves that we were alcoholics. This is the first step in recovery. Well, why is that so hard? Well, there's a line in another part of the book. It says the alcoholic's problem lies mainly in his mind. So I have a mind that doesn't want to look at this stuff. I have a mind that hides the truth from me for convenience, for to soothe me, for comfort. And I don't want to be an alcoholic. So my alcoholism, which is killing me, is hidden from me in a forest of other problems. Use of narcotics, stimulants, smoking pot, chronic depression, anxiety to the point of panic, that feeling of, of, of not of separateness, they call it today, they have a term for it, they even have medication for it, that social anxiety disorder. Um, lonely, lonely. Problems with employment, money. I can't seem to hold on to money. Uh, with women, I mean, I can't get them to mind. You know, just I, I got pro it's I got problems everywhere, and in it's in in the center of this forest of other problems is the one problem that's the that's causing all the others. There's a a tree. Have you ever been over to the island of Maui? In this in the town of Lahaina, in the square, there's a tree. It's one tree, but it looks like a whole forest. But in the center is the one trunk that comes out and all the other trees grow from that. And that's my alcoholism is like that. And I can't see it. I had a friend who used to, he died like 40, 35, 40 years ago. He used to say, alcoholism is the one disease that keeps telling you you don't got it. Or it's something else. And I, I don't know what it is about me that I will stare at the differences and ignore the similarities. You know, I I would listen to, in the years I was in and out, in, in those rehabs, I'd listen to AA speakers that would come in. And I don't hear the, the connection. I don't hear the similarities. I just sit there and judge them. You know, and I just, I look for the, what's the differences? You know, I remember the first time I ever, I was at a meeting and they were reading Bill's, part of Bill's story. And I, I'm not a stockbroker. I didn't go World War One. I, 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 I never saw... I never saw the, when he talked about his drinking. I never, I didn't see the things that are so in common. Now today, if I read Bill's story, I'm right there with him all the way. The things that are different are just circumstantial. They're meaningless. But the important stuff is the stuff I connect with. And I could have done that in AA if I didn't have a recovery-resistant mind, if I didn't have the kind of ego that defends itself against change. And I did. I didn't know I did that. I remember sitting in a meeting. I was in this rehab. They brought us, Sunday afternoon, they brought a speaker in. And I think this guy might have been a good speaker because he started to get to me a little bit. And I don't really listen because I, when somebody's 
yammering in AA, it's a, it's a nice time for me to think about me. You know what I mean? No, no, I mean, just, you know what I mean? It's right. And I, so I'm just, uh, but then he, he said a couple things that hit a little close to home. Like he talked about wet in the bed. Oh, that's happened to me a lot. He talked about uh, blackouts and he's getting a little close to home. And here's what my head did. My head's, as it's, I'm starting to get a little squirmy. Listen to this guy, because I'm identifying a little bit. And my head looked at him and went, oh, that's the stupidest looking toupee I've ever seen. <laughs> and with that judgment and opinion, I could throw out everything he said, and it defended me from connecting here. Because if I connect with you, that means I'm like you. And if I'm like you, then what would work for you would work for me. But I don't want to do what you, I'm too selfish. I'm too arrogant to do what you people do. I fit the old adage, you can always tell an alcoholic, you just can't tell him much. I'm very full of myself. And the sad, sad thing about that is I don't know any of this is true. Now, in hindsight, I, I, I know it very clearly. But when I was going through it, I didn't know it was, that was me. And I, I think one of the things that had to happen to me is I had to, I had to try to it, it, practice that great obsession of every abnormal drinker is that somehow, somehow, someday, some way, I'll control and enjoy my drinking. And I had to go after that and fail and fail and fail. And you know why we fail at that? Because if we succeeded, we would never come here, right? And all the drug use was to, to serve that great obsession. I, I did, uh, I was a blackout drinker. Any blackout drinkers in here? Wow. I'm always afraid I'll answer, ask that question and everybody will just sit there and look at me. I think, oh my God, I'm in an Al-Anon meeting. Uh, uh, I was a terrible blackout drinker. And, and I don't know about you guys, but nobody ever came up to me and said things the next day like, oh, you were so helpful last night. I, mean, I get people mad at me. You, you peed in our kitchen? You know, you hit on my wife. You stole my stash. You passed out on my front lawn. I was the worst one. I was sick. On my way to the liquor store to get a bottle of wine, I got the shakes, and this guy cuts in. And he says, I remember you. You're the guy that told everybody at the party last night you beat Bruce Lee in a karate match. I was like, oh, I want to hang myself. You know? <laughs> so if you're a blackout drinker, uh, it, it gets bad. So I, I discovered that if I did certain drugs when I drink, I could drink longer and I wouldn't blackout. Well, that sounds like a good idea, except occasionally it's you don't want to remember some of the stuff you did. Uh, and I was a terrible blackout drinker. I did other drugs because I found that and this I didn't understand. And this is almost what killed me. It's not just that I have an abnormal reaction to alcohol. I have everything that Dr. Silkworth talks about, an allergy to alcohol that when I drink it, I'm overcome with a, a, a powerful yearning for more. It's as if Deep in the center of my being is an unrecognized, unrealized switch. And only alcohol throws that switch. And it's the got to have more switch. And every time I drank alcohol, every, without exception, that would switch would get thrown. And I'm the kind of guy, if, if I'm at your house, and maybe you had a couple of us sitting around watching a game or something, or I don't know, playing card, whatever we're doing. And we, you had a case of beer, and we kill that case of beer, and there ain't no more, and there ain't no way to get more. You know what I'll do? I'll go to your bathroom and go through your medicine cabinet. I'll take whatever's there. If, it, if the bottle says, do not operate heavy machinery, I get excited. <laughs> and why is that? Because I'm a pill head? No. Because I'm an alcoholic, and when I drink alcohol, it does something to me that it only does to alcoholics, regardless of all the other problems. Now, I started to get that probably in the mid, 
probably about 19, about 76, I started to really understand from, from failure, from the, from the constant attempts to reel it in. And I can't. I, I remember one time in particular I came to, I was staying on a guy's couch because I, I didn't have any place to live. And I, a guy felt sorry for me, let me stay on his couch. And I'm, uh, I come to one morning and I'd had a, the night before it was a bad blackout. And it was kind of blackouts that you, that you don't remember. It's not the whole night's not blacked out. I remember kind of little snapshots of things and everything that I remember, these little snapshots make me cringe inside and I feel horrified because it's all bad. It's all, oh, and I'm scared. I thought I could have went to some of that. I might, I could have gone to jail. Now there's a whole group of people. I can't go around them anymore. I can't even go where they go because I don't want to see them. I'm so ashamed of my behavior. And I'm and talking to myself. I always, I always try to, you know, whenever I have a problem, I'm like this. Maybe some of you are like this. I always stare at the problems trying to figure out what to do. I never come up with a good answer because what I'm looking for, I'm looking with. But I'm always looking. And so I came up with a little plan because I'm supposed to meet some friends of mine down at Dots, which is the corner bar where we, where we shoot pool and sometimes we go out and play music at one of the guys' houses and stuff. And, and I need to, I need to do that because I'm not feeling I feel horrible, horrible. I got the tremors are back again, and I need to calm my nerves. And I thought I, I gotta I, I can't do that. I, I I need to do that, but I can't do that. And I I don't know what to do. And I, I come up with a plan. Now, if you're here and you're going to drink again, you need a plan. It's not that it'll help, but it'll soothe your mind going into your demise. So I had a plan. And here's the plan. It made perfect sense to me. I'm going to go down to that bar and I'm going to slow sip eight drinks. Eight's a good number. I remember thinking eight. I never did anything too bizarre on eight drinks. That's always 12 to 15. You know what I mean? Somewhere up in there. Eight's a good number. It's a secure number. I can calm my nerves in, with somewhere in the process of drinking eight drinks. I can have some fun, shoot some pool with my buddies. Man, that eight, this is a good plan. And it was, except the one the, right away, the idea of me slow sipping anything is ridiculous. I can't. But I, I'm drinking trying to make it, stretch it a little bit, you know, and I'm playing some pool, I'm having fun, I'm starting to get calm inside, it's good. I'm starting to get that feeling, of, a little bit of feeling of freedom from the horrible emotions and thoughts I had coming in there. And it, what a plan, until I got to the seventh drink. When I got to the seventh drink, it was like a spiritual awakening that eight was a bad number. <laughs> You know what I mean? It was a terrible number. What was I thinking? That was a stupid number. 12 is a better number. And what I don't understand is that that is an allergic reaction to alcohol that I can't see it. And I can't see it because it uses my own mind against me. And I don't think it's a craving. I don't think it's an allergy. I think I changed my mind. But I always changed my mind. Every single time. Every drink of alcohol I've ever taken in my life has made me feel like, my God, I'd like to have another drink. And that's what makes me an alcoholic. Well, there's the other aspect that almost killed me. It's not just that I have this abnormal reaction to alcohol, and God knows I do, but I have an abnormal reaction to abstinence. And it's hard to see. And it's hard to put your finger on. But every time I get sober, I ain't right. Now, I don't know why I'm not right. And I can't even describe to you why I'm not right. I can't even tell you how I feel because I doesn't. I don't understand it. Dr. Silkworth, in the book, he says, guys like me, when we stop drinking, what happens? Well, we get restless. You know, that inability to, to be settled anywhere. You know, I just... You ever watch a dog circle a room looking for its spot to lay down? I'm the dog that can't find its spot. I'm restless. I'm irritable. Don't know I'm irritable. Don't want to be irritable because irritable people kind of irritate me. I am not irritable. But I am very bright and I can see the stupidity in people quickly. It's a gift. It's a gift. 
and they rub me the wrong way, and I don't suffer stupidity well, and then I'm chronically malcontent. And that is very baffling to me. Why I can live in a world and I, I observe people that are happy and satisfied, and I look at what they have, and I work like hell to get what they have, only I don't feel the way they felt having it. There's something about me that no matter how good something is, the best girl I've ever been with, the best job I ever had, get that Harley I always wanted, playing in the band with those guys I always wanted, whatever it is, from the moment it is mine, the shine starts to wear off that crap. And I don't know why. I don't know why am I always unsatisfied? Why am I always unhappy? Why am I always seems there's a heaviness about life? Why am I prone to depression? What is this? And I, I didn't know. I, and I got sober in 1978. And I'll tell you, I was sober probably 10 years before I understood what that was about. And I was working with a guy in Indian Springs Prison. And I was trying to, it's hard to sponsor people in prison because you only see them like, you can go up there once a week. And I'm working with this guy and he's, t he's talking about some stuff and he's talking about doing time and how easy it is not to drink. And this is like his fourth or fifth time in prison. He's, he, he's so easy for him to stay sober when he's in prison. The, but the moment he gets out, every single time he goes and gets drunk. And I started realizing my God, of course, because when I stop drinking, I feel like I'm doing time. And if I really was doing time, at least my insides would match my outsides. There'd be a funny kind of sad rightness about that. But you put me out in the streets, you put me out where everybody seems to be happy. And I don't know why they're happy. I, I mean, oh God, I just, what's wrong with me? Why do I feel so weird? Why do I? I don't see any. I don't see anybody in AA. I don't see anybody at work. I don't see anybody on the streets that looks the way I feel. And I'm a phony. I'm a pretend guy. I pretend like I'm cool. I pretend like I feel good. I, I, you know that that passage in our book that where it talks about the newcomer saying, "Well, I work better, feel better, having a better time," and then it, it, it says, "BS." You know that's not. He's going to drink again because the truth is he's not happy about his sobriety. And I wasn't happy about my sobriety. I, but I, because I'm all front, no back, I pretend like I'm the pretend guy. Because, my God, I'm so concerned with what you think of me. And I don't feel like I fit, so I try to act like I fit, hoping if I act like you act, maybe I'll feel like you feel. And I never do. I always feel like I'm coming from behind. I remember one time I was in this halfway house and I was bored. I was restless and I was I just I was feeling bad. I'm trying to fight off a depression. And so I decided to go to the mall. Mall. This was back in the 70s when malls were becoming popular. And there's a lot of, you know, hot looking girls sometimes in the malls, things like that in that, in that nature. So I wanted to go to this mall. And I, I noticed something in the mall that was baffling to me. There was a lot of people that they weren't stoned, they weren't drinking, and they were just walking around, big smiles on their face, and they were happy for no reason. How can that be? And I, you know, I figured it out. You know why they're happy? Because they're stupid. <laughs> I would have to lose 30 IQ points to be happy like that. See, they, they just can't. They just don't have, they're not sharp enough to see the problems in their life. They're not sharp enough to see the injustices around them. They're not sharp enough to see the stupidity as I am burdened to see. And I think it's intelligence. It's not intelligence. It's the antithesis of intelligence. It's ego. That something inside of me is desperate because I feel so less than, it's desperate to elevate me above everybody else. And I don't know what to do, so one of my defense mechanisms is to judge you and pull you down and find fault with you, hoping, hoping against hope that I will level the playing field, hoping if I can find enough crap wrong with you, I won't feel so bad about me. 
And you know, if you've, if you've been like that, you know what happens? It doesn't make you feel better about yourself. It just makes you feel more separate and more alone. Alcoholism is a lonely, lonely business. Our book says the alcoholic will know a loneliness such as few do. In, in 1978, on my last run, uh, I tried to kill myself. And I tried to kill myself because my drinking had about three years prior to that, it had turned on me. And the last three years of my drinking, I'm chasing the ghosts of parties past and I can't catch them. The last couple years of my drinking, it's not a party. I'm not laughing and carrying on. I'm not talking to a bar or club, talking to girls. I'm the guy who drinks in depression, who drinks in horrible feelings of loneliness. Many times, if I was crashing on your couch or somewhere where there's a phone at four or five o'clock in the morning, three o'clock, I'd get on your phone. I'll call up people I went to grade school with. I'm so lonely. I called an ex-girlfriend up one time. The minute I heard her voice, I was so lonely and so depressed. I just, I started trying not, I was kind of half crying going, we should have got married. And, and then her husband gets on the phone, threatens me, you know. <laughs> this is not a party. This is pathetic. And yet, you get me three months sober in a halfway house. You know what I do? I start imagining there's a party where there isn't one. I start fantasizing that I can get high again like I did when I was 20 years old. And I can't. I don't, I've known... Uh, hundreds if not thousands of alcoholics who have crossed over that line into late stage alcoholism and in late stage alcoholism you've wrung every ounce of fun out of it and it's turned on you and i know everybody every alcoholic i've talked to has chased the fun as the book says into the gates of insanity or death and you never catch it because it's gone it's gone and I'm dying, and, and it's, and I, and I'm feeling more ashamed of myself, and more of a failure, and more depressed, because I'm, I'm, ruining my life chasing something I can't catch. It wouldn't have been bad if I could have got an hour every night of feeling free and, and lit up, and you know it, that ease and comfort that I used to get. You know, it'd almost be it. It'd almost be a good exchange. If if a genie popped out of a bottle and said to me, "Hey, Bob, tell you what, I'll give you six months out of every year of partying like you did when you were 20 years old. You got to spend the other six months in a horrible prison, locked up. What do you think?" I think, yeah, sign me up for that. That that'd be good. Yeah, I think, right? Because because the, the truth is. I want that more than I want anything. I might have a new girlfriend tell her how important she is. Push comes to shove. I'm chasing the ghosts of parties past at her expense. My parents left them in the dust. When I got when I stood on that bridge in 1978, trying to kill myself, there was nobody left. I had been uh, I'd been arrested right not too long before that for a hit-and-run DUI in a stolen, borrowed car. And um, they sentenced me to two years and then stayed the, the commitment, put me in a long-term treatment center, which I was supposed to stay for a year. Couldn't. I can't stay sober a year. When they say in our book, lack of power is our dilemma, I mean, we all got a little bit of power. You know, a little bit. I can stay, I can, I can get like a mule in a hailstorm and not drink day in and day out and week in and week out, month in for six, eight months. But a year, whew, every day I'm sober with untreated alcoholism just wears on my ass. It just, you know, it's a, yeah, it was a funny place for me. You'd hear these, I'd be in some recovery house and all these do-gooders from AA come in to tell you you've ruined your life. You're there because you ruined your life. And these AA people come in to tell you their miracle stories and their gratitude stories. I remember sitting there one time thinking, oh my God, I've died and gone to hell. 
It's not, it's not bad enough that I've ruined my life. No one will talk to me. When they gave me the phone call in jail, there was nobody to call. But I have to spend the rest of eternity listening to these idiots tell me how wonderful they are. Oh, my God. This is horrible. And because I have this abnormal reaction to abstinence. And I don't know it. I think AA is... Got good news and bad news, Bob. Good news is if you go to thousands of these stupid meetings, you might stay sober the rest of your life. And the bad news, you're going to live a long time. Because <laughs> abstinence feels like I'm doing time. And, I, and that's what guys like me reap if I just stop drinking. That's what it feels like to have untreated alcoholism, a disease that demands treatment demands it and it'll use my emotions and my thoughts to wear on me and wear on me and wear on me until you know the day comes got two months ago when they when they let, released me from the county I, I knew i was never going to drink again now something's happened inside of me slowly where on this particular day it seems like a great idea to drink again and i can't remember how i was sobbing Swearing to myself, I'll never touch that stuff again. Can't remember that. You know what I remember? I remember the things I should forget. I remember the, the things that aren't even true. Silkworth, the doctor's opinion, says after a time, guys like me can't differentiate the true from the false. I can't. And I don't know that I can't because my thinking seems so real to me. I don't remember how drinking has turned on me and now I drink in depression and it's horrible and lonely and it's not a party anymore. I remember the, the drinking of when I was 20 years old, 18 years old, when it was magic. And I'm chasing something. And so in 1978, when I'm trying to kill myself, if, if some AA member that I'd met in a meeting somewhere would have come along and saw me, and he would have said to me, Bob, what the hell are you doing? Come with us. Come back to AA. Work the steps. Do that stuff. Your you're, you're, alcoholism's killing. You're going to kill yourself, for God's sakes. I would, I just would have, you don't understand. It's not alcoholism. Well, what is it? Well, I don't know. It feels like I'm dying of loneliness because I don't fit anywhere drinking and I don't fit anywhere sober and my uh, grand sponsor was a guy named Chuck I used to love listening to Chuck Chamberlain talk it, one of the things Chuck said often was that there was one problem and it contained all problems and it was conscious and unconscious separation between me and you that's why I never fit with you and me and God God was so far away I I I, he was so far away, I'd just rather choose him to be an atheist. He can't possibly help me anyway. And I was even disconnected from life and disconnected from myself. Obsessively self-concerned, selfish, self-centered people like me. My selfishness is so extreme that it can pull me away from my own internal moral compass. I will compromise my own. I'm not compromising your principles. I'm compromising mine. There's something inside me that always knew what was right or wrong. But the need for gratification and security and self-grandizement sometimes clamored in me so loudly that I would I would do things that I know I shouldn't do this. Or, or even worse, you think, oh, my God, this is going to turn out bad. But but it might be good for an hour, you know, <laughs> right? <laughs> you know, you, know you, you meet some girl and you think, oh, I, did, I wouldn't even want my sponsor to know I had lunch with her, but it could be fun for an hour, you know? <laughs> yeah, I'm bragging when I say an hour, five minutes. Uh, so that this selfishness and self-centeredness can drive not only, need to be separate from you and separate from God in life, but even from me. No wonder I'm so alone. No wonder I'm so confused. I, I don't know who I am. I don't know what my life's about. None of it makes sense. It's, we're a baffled lot, the book says. And yet, 
From 1971 on to this day, I noticed something in AA. There were some of the old timers, not all of them. There were a few old timers looked like they needed a drink, but there was some old timers that they just, they walked with, with, with a, level of comfort they walked with a level of purpose that was beyond me like as if they truly they weren't a pretend guy like I was they truly knew who they were and they were the guys that were properly armed with information about themselves they'd work the steps and they there was no mystery about what their life's about they knew what their life's about they were given a purpose greater than themselves they they swapped the purpose they got sober with, we all get sober with the same purpose. Me, I'm my primary purpose. My feelings, my security, my sex life, what you think of me, 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 me. I am my own primary purpose and you guys have nudged me and pushed me through a step and service and tradition process to swap out me for a purpose greater than myself and that's to help other drugs. And when you claim that, then the worst of you becomes the best of you. When you claim that, you're, you're not only does your life have purpose, it makes sense. The stuff I wouldn't tell anybody when I got sober, now I'm telling people because it helps people, right? It all makes sense. There's nothing, I don't think there's anything more greater than a, having purpose in your life. I, I get up in the morning, I got purpose. I got phone calls to return. I got sponsees to talk about. I got commitments. I, I got purpose in my life. That is amazing for me. I'm not the loose cannon anymore on the deck of my ship. I have, my life has structure. I love that. Um, but I did, I resisted that for years. What happened to me is I had this failed suicide attempt and I came out of that and I was so demoralized. I had a moment on this bridge where I couldn't, I couldn't bring myself to jump, not because I'm afraid of dying, because I'm afraid this isn't high enough. And I've had a string of not good luck. And uh, with my not good luck stream, I probably end up paralyzed from the neck down in some charity ward for 50 years and nobody will bring you a drink because I don't have any friends left. So I, I broke down on that bridge. I never felt lower. I, I think it, it, it probably and truly was that state it talks about in our book of pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization. You, you, you know pathetic, you felt pathetic, you've hated yourself, you've loathed your, and then this is a level even below all that. That not only have I lost everybody that I cared about in my life, not only have I burnt my life to the ground, not only have I failed at being sober and I failed at drinking, when I want to kill myself and make it all stop, I failed at that too. There's a, that's a level of pathetic below anything I've ever known. And I came off that bridge and I ended up in this, through a bizarre series of circumstances that's baffling to me to this day. Sometimes you look back in hindsight and you can see the hand of God in your life. Uh, because it's it, at first it, you don't want to believe that, but the coincidences sometimes pile up and they're so overwhelming that what could it be except something? And I, I can't, ended up in Las Vegas, wasn't trying to go to Las Vegas, trying to go to California. Ended up in Las Vegas in a detox. And I think, I believe, through divine appointment, I met my first sponsor because he was perfect for me. Perfect. He was a, a fanatical servant. He'd been delegate. He'd, he'd started the Las Vegas Roundup. He was, he was a, the, on the board of a halfway house, one of the clubs. He, he started the retreat. He, was, he started the first hospital and institution meetings in Las Vegas. He, I, I met him because he brought a meeting into the detox I was in twice a week. This is not a guy who talks about AA. This is a guy who does AA every day of his life. And he was sober a long time. And he, and he had a tremendous life. I didn't even know it till later. He lived in a mansion up on a hill with tennis courts in his backyard and gardens and he had two brand new Cadillacs and it looked out over the city of Las Vegas. I never expected that. I thought 
you know, you meet a guy that detox, you think, well, this guy evidently doesn't have a life. <laughs> you know, he had a huge life, huge life. But at the center of his huge, robust, full life was a purpose that wasn't his life. His purpose was to look for guys like me. And he found me. And I made a deal with him. I said, if, uh, if, if you'd, would you sponsor me? And if you will, I'll do anything you ask me to do. And the journey began. And he was... He was not a big book guy that much because back in the 70s, the big book, the wave of big book renaissance and consciousness didn't hit the fellowship for the most part around the United States until the early 1980s. Matter of fact, I listened to my first set of Joe and Charlie uh, cassettes that came out of the 1980 International because Wesley Parrish went down there and he was brought them down there and he was enthralled with what they did this little workshop down in Arkansas and he brought him down there he made a hundred copies of that workshop and he gave them to the perfect person in each area of the country he knew because Wesley knew a lot of people he knew the guys that started the conferences that did the doers he handed them out to the doers and within two three years Joe and Charlie were all over the world they changed AA they, re they reintroduced us to something that we had unfortunately turned away from. When the 12 Steps and 12 Traditions book was published in the early 50s, nobody, they, they, the reason they, that Bill put that book together was to better bring the traditions into place. And he was told by some, pe some people he respected that you, you better not just do a book just on the traditions. Nobody in A would buy it. You're going to have to put the steps in there, too. So he wrote the essays on the steps and published that book, and not ever expecting that within a decade, most of the fellowship would be starting step studies using that book, and nobody was using the big book anymore. But that had happened. I remember back in the 70s, my years in and out of AA, I could ask, you could take the oldest old-timer in an AA group and say, how do you, where do you find where it tells you how to work the fourth step? They tell you the chapter four. And the book, the 12 step, they, they, my first sponsor didn't even know where to find that in the big book. And then Joe and Charlie came along and they, they changed everything. And I, I heard that first set of cassettes. My home group was a big book study. And I heard that first cassette in late 1980. Uh, so I got a set from somebody that came back from the international with them. I listened to it and my home group's a big book study. And I'm listening to that, and I'm thinking, what the hell book are they talking about? Because they're saying things. Now, we read the book, but nobody talked about the things that they were. Nobody really looked at it. We'd read it, and this was so common back in the 70s. You'd read a, half a chapter of the big book. And then people would share on what they're grateful for. They'd share about their day. They'd share their drunk log. And the book was just kind of passing everybody by. Joe and Charlie made it come alive. And I remember hearing that stuff, and I started putting that stuff in my life. And it wasn't too long after that I started taking guys through that stuff. And um, You know, it's funny. The Hindus have a saying that the student doesn't learn the lesson until he becomes the teacher. You really want to know how to work the steps? Help people work the steps. The student becomes the teacher and learns the lesson. And I, I that's so, so true for me. Well, <clears throat> I want to tie something in this weekend that might seem a little odd to some of you. I'm curious. How many people here have worked the steps? Good. That's a, it's a good, good, good gathering. How many people that are sober a long time have worked the steps more than once? Wow. How about more than twice? More than five times? And yet, you wouldn't be coming back and doing it if there wasn't something missing, huh? 
I, I, do, I do Alcoholics Anonymous for the same reason I drank whiskey. What did whiskey do for me? Got me high, you could say, yeah, yeah, yeah. Gave me a feeling of being able to come out and play, yeah, yeah. What did it do, though? What was, what was the thing that was so valuable to me in the effect produced by alcohol? It gave me a sense of unity. Carl Jung, in a letter to Bill Wilson, said in the early 60s, he said that as a result of working with Roland Hazard and countless other alcoholics, that he came to the conclusion that the alcoholic's thirst for alcohol isn't really a thirst for alcohol. He said he thought it was a low-level thirst of the alcoholic's being for unity. Or if you're more religiously minded, he said, or maybe a union with God. It's to be connected. Alcoholism is a lonely business. And I drank, and, and I've had this experience, and I bet you every chronic alcoholic in this room has had this experience, where you walk into a party, or you walk into a club or a bar, and you don't, you're having a bad day. And, and the people in there, because you walk in sober, and they're irritating, and they're clicky, and just, you know, you just look around, you don't like any of that, just, Stupid, clicky people. Yeah. You know what I mean? Did you ever did have that feel? Like, you know. But you don't leave because this is where the alcohol is. And then these, this contempt, this separation, this depression, this anxiety, all these feelings that are on me and the goddamn loneliness of it. After about two strong drinks, doubles, I shake it off me. After about four drinks, some of those people I didn't like when I walked in there, I start thinking they're, you know, they're really not bad people. I, you know, after about six drinks, we're shooting pool together. After about eight drinks, we're planning our vacations together. You know, after about 12 drinks, I'm saying things like, I love you, man. You know, I'll die for you, bro. You know, like, ooh, I mean, connected. Now that's unity. That is the thing, and I yearned for that, and I drank for that. I drank because of the loneliness and separation of untreated alcoholism, and alcohol was an, a very, very effective medicine for that. So if that's true, and here I am, I'm 25 years sober, 20 years sober, I've been through the steps five or six times, and yet I still have those feelings of disconnection. I still have the feelings that something ain't right. I'm getting in trouble with people. I, my personal relationships are crap. I can't, I, the bedevilments on page 52 are still kind of true for me. You know, per, problem with personal relationships, a feeling of unhappiness, full of fear. I'm a worrier and I ain't right. And you know, if you're like me and you're a big book guy and I was a big book guy, you know, you so you go back through the work again. And back through the work again. And I started thinking, man, there's something missing here. And there was a guy in AA when I was new. He said something that stuck with me. And he said that the highest set of spiritual principles in Alcoholics Anonymous was when practiced personally in your life was the original set of the 12 traditions. Because what are, why, do, why do the traditions exist? They exist because of a lack of unity. They exist just like step one takes a guy who's powerless and can't manage his own life and brings, now, brings a, a higher power into his life and a new manager. And the first tradition is that our common welfare. What's that mean? That means everybody except you. You're last. That, and that's hard for a selfish person to put the group, to put your family, to put your wife, to put your kids, to put everybody else before you. That in order to feel like the first, you have to be the last. That they have to come first. And personal recovery, that's, that, this is me now. 
that my personal recovery depends upon AA unity. Well, what does that mean? You ever watched people in your home group leave AA and eventually drink? Some of them die. How do they leave? How do many of them leave? Through a lot of inaction, primarily, that's a big piece of it. But some guys leave AA one judgment and one opinion at a time. You know, they don't even know they're leaving. It just seems like all of a sudden, the quality of people at AA sure has gone down a lot. You know, you know what I mean? You know, right? You, you go to meetings and you there's some but some people sharing on some topic and you realize you're the only one in the room that knows about it. You know, but they and they don't call on you, which is an offense. Uh, and you just all of a sudden the separation starts again. You know. I had, a, I had a friend that uh, left A not too long ago, can't get back. It's, it's really, uh, it's a very sad thing. I've, I've tried desperately to work with guys that have been sober 20 years, 30 years that drink again. My God, the progression of the illness is, it's, it's staggering. Very few people get back. And what, why is, what's the, what progresses the most? Is it the physical stuff, you get sicker quicker? Yeah, maybe. Your financial situation, you burn through your money quicker? Yeah, maybe. But I think the thing that kills us, it's the progression of the ego. Whereas at one time, they, they could surrender, they can't surrender now. At one time, they were willing to, to become humble enough and small enough that they could be sponsored. You can't sponsor. I've tried to sponsor some of these guys. They become the I know everything guys. I think I saw often I was talking to this one guy and, and he's he drank after 20 some years and I'm he's not listening to me. He wants to just talk over what I'm saying. I finally had to yell at him, stop it, listen to me. And I, I start telling him things I want him to do as his sponsor. And he goes, Yeah, yeah, I know. Uh-huh. Yeah, I know. Uh-huh. Yeah. I, I really thought he was really saying, out here he's saying, Yeah, I know. In here he's saying, Shut up, go away. because uh, he does he can't listen to me. And he can't follow my directions because he's too full of himself. And that's what had progressed, the ego. The ego, I, I remember Chuck Chamberlain saying one time, if it wasn't for the ego, we wouldn't even need AA. It's the, it's the chronic nature of the sickness. And the, the psychiatrist who worked with Bill Wilson and Marty Mann, and he was, uh, was on our board, he spoke at one of the internationals was a guy named Harry Tebow. And Harry Tebow said two things that to me really hit home. He talked about we must have ego reduction at depth. And then he said, even if you do, there's this amazing recuperative ability of the alcoholic ego. It grows back like a bad tumor. And that's what's baffling to guys like me who felt and believed they were spiritually connected, and now the ego is a shift changer. Now I, I think I'm, I fancy I'm still spiritual. I fancy I'm still surrendered, uh, but I'm not. I remember, uh, it's embarrassing to tell this story, but it's true. I, I went to a, uh, I, I became so full of myself and so opinionated, and I, and I don't even know that. You know, one of the lines in our book that I think is so, it's funny and yet true, Wilson says that the alcoholic is an extreme, extreme example of self-will run riot, though he usually doesn't think so. I never think, you catch a guy like me in the middle of a self-will run riot binge, try, obsessed with getting his own way, getting what he wants, defending and protecting what he already has, you get catch a guy like me like that and ask me in the middle of it, Bobber, you think right now maybe you could possibly be an extreme example of self-will run right? <laughs> no. I'm doing this is the I need to do this stuff. It never looks that way to me. And yet Wilson says something that's so true. He, he says, we're not just a we don't have a problem with self. We have an extreme, 
problem with it. We're self-centered on steroids. You know how you, t if you ever spend any time, if you have any family members that aren't alcoholic, my daughter is not an alcoholic. And I'll get it, truly, she's one of the most emotionally well-balanced people, selfless. She started a charity through her, she's a, through her position with the bank. I mean, she's just amazing. She, she has this moral compass that she's never, never deviated from it. Never. I, I used to, we used to have a daughter, daddy, daughter date night. We'd go to a dinner and a movie every week. But when I turned 60, you can get the discounted tickets. Well, I'm going to the movie one night and I got two tickets. I said, here, Kate, here's your ticket. And I got mine. She said, she looked at me. She said, oh, dad, that's, that's your ticket. And I said, what do you mean? No, it's your ticket. She said, but it says senior on it. Well, they both say senior. Dad, you can't do that. <laughs> I had to go and pay the difference. I was humiliated. I was like, I, I threw, I threw my morals out the window for a dollar and a quarter, for God's sakes. I mean, this is, this is pathetic. But see, it would never, it never, never concern her to do that. She wouldn't do it. She just wouldn't do it. She always does the right thing. When, when she, uh, she's given me my first grandson, who's just, he's one of the handsomest kids you'd ever seen. And if I showed you a picture of him, he looks just like me. True, <laughs> he does too. Uh, when before she met her husband, she was dating. She dated a couple of people that I didn't really care for. I like her husband a lot. And she was dating this one guy, and I, I just want to. She likes him, I like him, you know. I don't, I don't want to get into that. I just want what's best for her. I think the guy's a player. I think he's going to hurt her, but I keep my mouth shut because you taught me that, just to be of service without opinion. And I just, you know, I just did that. Well, he cheated on her, broke her heart. And I'm meeting her for dinner one night, and. Uh, She's upset. And I sit down in this booth in this restaurant with her, and I said, Kate, she starts telling me about it. And I, I don't, I, I love my daughter, but I don't, sometimes they, you don't know how to respond to things. You know, I, like I missed the parenting, the parenting class somewhere along the way. You know what I, I so I'm like ad-libbing. I don't know what to, I'm saying weird stuff that's, the minute I say it, I think it's stupid. Like, well, I guess you got to, kiss a lot of frogs before you meet your prince. I'm saying weird stuff like, but I, cause I care about her. So she goes home that night. I go home, I'm planning on meeting uh, about a, almost a week later in the same restaurant. So she, I get to the restaurant. She's already sitting in the booth. I slide into the booth cause I, I'm concerned. I want to be, I want to be there for, her. I want to be your dad. And I, I slide across from her. I said, so, Kate, how's it going? She goes, oh, it's good, Dad. I thought, oh, she's so brave. I said, no, you know, Kate with the breakup and everything. She said, well, you know, Dad, you, you can't hold on to that stuff. You, you got to move on. Actually, I'm going to go out to, to dinner with a guy next week. And, yeah, you know, you can't hold on to that stuff. And I'm looking at her. And I'm thinking about how I took five or six meetings hostage during relationship breakups. How I, how I made my sponsor's eyes glaze over. You know, how I, I, I would milk it for, I said to her, Kate, you couldn't possibly have got enough mileage out of that yet. But see, she's not an extreme example of self-overrun riot. She won't take stuff with the obsessiveness that I will. She feels the feelings. She moves on. That is a level of mental health beyond anything most of us will ever know, right? <laughs> but that's because I'm an extreme example of self-will run riot. And I don't like to let go. And I don't let go easily. And so Alcoholics Anonymous gets a hold of a guy like me. And you started getting me to take actions that ran contrary to everything I ever felt or believed in. Some of the crazy stuff in A doesn't make sense. You know, it's like you, you call your sponsor up and you're having a bad day. 
and you just, oh my God, I'm just, everything's terrible today. And he says, meet me at the detox. But there's nobody down there that could help me. Right? Me, 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 me. And you're saying them, them. <laughs> right? And, and I go and do it. And what happens? I come out the backside of that meeting after spending a, 20 minutes after the meeting talking to some guys. And I, it's a game changer for me. Because at the core, there's only... The problem is the separation, and at the core of the separation and the trouble is selfishness and self-centeredness. And I, my very life depends upon me taking actions regularly that will temporarily relieve me of the bondage of self, very much like whiskey. You know, it's, it's funny, you know, guys do a 12-step call here and there, and they think, oh, good, I'm done, I did that. I never thought that when I was drinking. I ne the next day, I never thought, why doesn't why am I why doesn't the bottle of whiskey I drank last night last forever? I always knew I had to re up. I always knew that because the the relief, the ease and comfort, and the feeling of freedom that I got last night has worn off. And I always knew that. I never argued with that. Always knew I had to go get more. And that's the way Alcoholics Anonymous is. It's a it's a treatment. And the book says, is there is it a substitute? Yes, it's vastly more than that. It's a treatment for alcoholism. It's a treatment for the one problem. And I only have one, and it's the bondage of self. And that is it, it's so independent. You know, that's it, You'll see something every once in a while in Alcoholics Anonymous that it, at first glance seems baffling. And that's somebody that's worth $100 million that commits suicide. Or someone who has everything you'd ever want and they kill themselves. And what's that about? Well, no matter how good we get it out here, if it ain't no good in here, it ain't no good. I went to a meeting we have a club in Las Vegas that's in the middle of pretty affluent part of Vegas. In the parking lot, there's a lot. There's Porsches and there's BMWs and Mercedes. There's an occasional Bentley in there. Um, all kind of suburban people and million-dollar homes, you know, that kind of stuff at the AA meeting. And when I don't like going over there and the, the, because the meetings feel bad to me because the these really well-to-do people are very whiny and very depressed and just kind of, you know, they just probably, it's one of those meetings that starts out, does anybody have a problem? And everybody, oh, I got a problem. All problem, no solution. And I, I was sponsoring a guy in Southern California who had a panel up in Morro Bay at, at, uh, at one of the, what's that, the, sort of maximum security, central, coastal. Yeah, 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 yeah. Hit a panel up there. And he said, I want you to come up with me and, and be one of the speak to speak there. I said, yes. Yeah, so it's so quite a ride up from LA. We get up there and he's, he knows everybody because he goes there once a month. And he's introducing me to all these guys. And these guys are lit up. This is the spirit in this prison meeting is amazing. And he's telling me, introducing me to people, and then he's telling me on the side, that guy's got two life sentences. He'll never get out. This guy's got a life sentence. See that guy back on the wall with the big book and that talking to that new guy? He's a new fish on the yard. He's sponsoring him. He's taking him through the doctor's opinion. And they're laughing. And they're, and they're they, and I was, I was watching all this, and I thought to myself, my God, these people are freer who will never get out of prison than those idiots that had the big cars and the big houses at that meeting I was at earlier this week. Because there's only one freedom and it contains all freedoms. The freedom from the bondage of self. And if a guy like me doesn't take the actions to accomplish that, then I got nothing. I could be the guy who, like that guy in Malibu who committed suicide in the middle of a $15 million house on the beach. 
I could be that guy. Because if you don't have that freedom, you got nothing. Well, I can feel the attention span of people waning. Um, <laughs> do you have any announcements, anybody? Should we close with a prayer or just... Why don't we close with the Lord's Prayer? We hope you enjoyed this recording. If you are interested in other speaker tapes or CDs from AA or Al-Anon, please contact us at Sound Solutions, toll-free, one 893-2777 or visit us on the web at soundsolutionsrecording.com We are also available to cover your recording and sound system needs. Thank you for allowing us to be of service and carrying the message.